For today's scripture reading, we'll read from Haggai 2, verse 20 to 23, in our Pew Bibles. This is on page 792. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down and everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. Good morning. Before we dive into Haggai, I'd actually like to read from Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 12. It's the genealogy of Jesus where Zerubbabel is mentioned. So we'll look at Matthew 1, starting in verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abayud, Abayud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. According to this genealogy, we can see that Zerubbabel was Jesus' great times nine grandfather. And there are some of Jesus' forefathers whom we're really familiar with, like a King David. And then there are others we're not so familiar with, like Zerubbabel. And the wonderful thing, though, throughout this entire genealogy, even though most of these people were not very familiar with who they are, maybe we're familiar with their names, but not exactly who they are, is that God knows every single one of these people, just like he knows us. And whether it is someone of prominence like a King Solomon or a not-so-well-known person like a Zerubbabel, that God knows each of those people intimately, just like he knows everything about us. He inclines his ear to us. He desires to hear from us, whether we are a king or whether we are a carpenter. Now, one of the misconceptions that people have is surrounding this idea of happiness. And when we look at happiness, some people would tend to think that the place of a king would be a happier place to be than the place of a carpenter. We also tend to value the pursuit of happiness over another pursuit, which I think is much more important, and that is the pursuit of holiness. It's understandable for people who don't know God to chase happiness over holiness, but for those of us who do know God, the pursuit of holiness is the priority over that pursuit of happiness. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians can't be happy because we obviously have some very, very happy news, but the happiness does not equate to growing in knowledge about God. Happiness does not equate to growing in intimacy, it doesn't deepen our relationship with God, and holiness does not equate to happiness. And obviously it can, but when you are closest to someone, 
And when you're thinking about when your relationship grows with a particular someone, it tends to be when you're most vulnerable. And more often than not, that vulnerability is kind of stirred by a challenge to overcome together. That even when solutions are not readily available to you or they're unknown, that doing that together, solving that conflict together is what brings about a closeness. And so with God, this pursuit of holiness, which often involves challenges, increases our knowledge of God. And it's very important to keep this in mind as we go through our own personal challenges. To pursue holiness more than wondering, why am I going through what I'm going through? And we can know God, but we don't always understand God. And so with that kind of background and with Matthew chapter 1 as a background, let's take a look at Haggai chapter 2 now, starting in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So we do know that Zerubbabel was a forefather of Jesus that he went on to then star on this awesome show called The Flintstones. He then changed his name to Barney Robel, and um, that he had a son named Bam Bam and a wife named Betty. His best friend was named Fred, and he's the blonde one. That's Barney. But before this illustrious cartoon career, Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah, and he became the governor actually under Persian rule, even though he was born during Babylonian rule in the Babylonian captivity. In 587 BC, the people of Judah were taken to Babylon under captivity, and it was there where Zerubbabel was born, which explains the meaning of his name, which means offspring of Babylon or seed of Babylon. And so it was this name because Hebrews usually name their kids' names dependent on like how they are. And so, okay, here's this kid, and um, we're under captive, therefore, okay, offspring of Babylon is his name. No surprise, because his dad's name is Shealtiel, so it's not like he had a great name, too. He's like, I'm going to get my kid back. But this name is a constant reminder to poor old Zerubbabel that he's a captive. So for the rest of his life, I'm a captive. But then the Persians came into power. The Persians overthrew the Babylonians, but, and then they allowed the people to return back to the land of Judah. This is a, in 538 B.C. Zerubbabel is an adult at this time. He becomes the governor of this very desolate, depressing land. There in Judah, Zerubbabel hears Haggai's rebuke, right? Haggai chapter 1 is a rebuke. Then Haggai chapter 2, he hears this encouragement. Haggai, the second half of it, is a reminder of the rebuke. And then here we are end of chapter 2. Now there's no doubt that Haggai played a significant part of the people repenting in obedience in chapter 1 and looking to rebuild the temple. And so at this time, why don't you put yourself in Zerubbabel's sandals? Because there he was, governor of this very dismal-looking city of Judah, looking out to this very depressing land, wondering... Is there any hope at all for us to return to the once glorious Judah that we had? The one that my forefathers were rulers of. And what is going to become of all these people? Because as we talked about last week, they are at the brink of famine. What's going to happen to them? And I'm their governor. 
And then it's here where the prophet Haggai has something to share with Zerubbabel, and he appears to him a second time. It's December 18th, 520 BC. We talked about this date last week. The Hebrew calendar is given to us here. We have to transpose that into our date, which is December 18th, 520 BC. And this is what he's saying, verse 21. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their rider shall go down, everyone by sword of his brother. What does this tell Zerubbabel about God, which is something I think all of us need to hear about God? This is saying that God is sovereign. Now we read this and we're thinking, cute, chariots, horses, riders, overthrown. We have to kind of plug in our present day Warfare weaponry. What is that today? We, we, we plug in aircraft carrier, nuclear submarine, drones, jets, bombers, nuclear weapons. That's what God will overthrow for peace. And so sometimes we read the scriptures and we don't think about what this means for God in the present. And then we miss the sovereignty. We miss the majesty. We miss the power of God because it's saying horses and chariots, and we think like, cute, horses and chariots. But we're talking about tanks. We're talking about every advanced weaponry that we can think of in our world today. God will overthrow that to bring about peace. From Zerubbabel's perspective, he is governor of this very small minority group that has been held in captivity as exiles in Babylon for a couple generations. They were conquered by these people, taken back to Babylon as captives, and now they're even under a more powerful oppressor in the Persians. But through all of this powerlessness, Haggai is pointing the people to how sovereign, how powerful, how majestic our God is. That no matter how powerless we may feel about what's going on around us and in us, God is sovereign. God is in control. He is the one who shakes the heavens and the earth. God overthrows the thrones of the kingdoms. He is the one that destroys the strength of the nations. And this serves as a reminder to us who know God, who desire to know God, that whenever we feel discouraged or whenever we feel hopeless, God is sovereign. When everything around us seems not to be working out, when the world seems unpredictable, when it seems out of control, we still know that God is in control. And we look back to this story where Persia is the superpower of the world at this time and whatever they want to happen will happen to the people of God, it seems. Because in their minds they must be thinking, you know, we're, we are the most powerful. We can wipe out all of these Jews whenever we decide to. Is that true? It is not, because God is in control. There were some people in World War II who thought they could wipe out all of the Jews. But God is in control. And there are people throughout all of world history who have been trying to wipe out Jews. But God is in control. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15. The prophet Isaiah says this about nations. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, 
and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And you can read the rest of Isaiah 40 that tells us of, of the sovereignty of God. Haggai here is putting into perspective who Persia was for Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Who is Haggai putting in perspective for you? And perhaps it is a person, perhaps it is a place, whatever it may be that is having you feel despair, discouragement, hopelessness, to remember God is the one who shakes the heavens and the earth, that God is the one who overthrows the thrones of kingdoms. God destroys the strength of nations, that any weapon formed against you will not prosper, and that God is in control. So the people of Judah, it makes sense that they would have felt like God had abandoned them. I have uh, quite a few Jewish friends who feel this way about God today, uh, that they remain culturally Jewish and they partake in the celebrations, but spiritually they feel God has abandoned them, therefore they are not worshiping God because of what has happened during the Holocaust. So you can transfer how that feeling is to the people of the Babylonian captivity and how they must feel. God has abandoned us. But God never abandons his people. Look back to Isaiah chapter 40 once again, starting in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not heard from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a, a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth before he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And so we read of the Lord's sovereignty, and we have evidence of this. We have empirical evidence of this. When you just simply look at the greatest empires to ever exist in world history, how they've risen and how they've all fallen. And most recently we studied the book of Daniel, well, not most recently, a little while ago, and we read of King Nebuchadnezzar, arguably the most powerful king in all of the Babylonian history, in Daniel chapter 4, that the sovereignty of God should not be anything new to us because we have for us recorded through history books, secular included, as well as the Bible, pointing to the rise and falls of kingdoms, but for us in the Bible pointing to the sovereignty of God. And sometimes we forget this, and, and by forgetting it, we then minimize it. But we have to be reminded and turn back to these scriptures, like Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, where it reads, The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over it the lowliest of men. We need to remember this when we feel uncertain about the things that are happening around us, in our cities, in our state, in our country, 
in our world that God is in control. And whether we are fearful of everything that is happening around us or if we swing the pendulum and we're just overly confident about the things happening, to remember that it is the Lord who raises nations and has them fall. To lift our eyes like Zerubbabel, to see that the Lord is on the throne, to not lose sight of the Lord's majesty, that God delivers the lowliest because he is the greatest. 23, verse 23, Haggai chapter 2. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. I really love how personal God is and how he addresses Zerubbabel so personally that he talks about overthrowing and shaking and destroying nations. And then he changes it here in verse 23. I will take you, make you, chosen you. See, even though God is shaking, overthrowing, destroying all that, all who oppose him, he's also the one who preserves you. He will take you, make you, choose you. We know Zerubbabel is the ancestor of Jesus, but we need to go back a couple of generations to Zerubbabel's grandfather to get um, an idea of what is happening. So who was that? Matthew recorded for us in Matthew chapter 1 that it is Jeconiah. Uh, Jeconiah is also known as Jehoiachin, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 24 and 25 and other several other references. We know that Jeconiah was taken captive to Babylon in 597 BC. He was the last official king of Judah before the captivity. Now there are records that King Zedekiah ruled afterwards, but Jeconiah is the last official king of Judah prior to the captivity. Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, same person. Five centuries before Jeconiah, the Lord made a promise to King David about this royal lineage that would descend from David, which Jeconiah would have known because this promise would have obviously been passed down from generation to generation of this royal line. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. It reads, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's also in Psalm 89, starting in verse 29. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in skies, Selah. That was the promise that God made to King David, whose kingly descendant is Jeconiah. Jeconiah was taken captive, exiled to Babylon. What does that promise mean now? 
This royal line is to lead to Messiah, the King, the Savior. What will happen to this messianic line now that Jeconiah is taken captive, exiled to Babylon, and oppressed by a different empire? And so you can imagine the crisis Jeconiah, all the relatives, all the people of Judah had because they were taken captive. And this is Zerubbabel's grandfather. Zerubbabel is a direct descendant of the royal line, the Davidic line of Judah. And he must be wondering, what about that promise in 2 Samuel? What about that promise in Psalm 89? Now look back to verse 23 where God tells Zerubbabel, I will make you like a signet ring. What's a signet ring? A signet ring was a piece of jewelry that the king wore, whether it was on his finger or on a necklace around his neck. But on this ring was this engraving or insignia of the king. And the king would use this insignia as the official stamp to, to stamp on any official document as a symbol on a piece of wax or a piece of clay to show that the king's authority is on this matter. And so the signet ring's imprint would show the genuine authenticity of the king's desires, orders, whatever it may be. Now turn to Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. Prophet Jeremiah writes this for us. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, this is Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. And give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Now you remember when we were reading in Psalm 89, what did it read in verse 30? If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But... I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. See, they were disobedient. They did violate statutes and commandments. Therefore, that signet ring was torn off Jeconiah as a judgment per Jeremiah chapter 22, Psalm 89. But the promise of the Lord still stood that his love that his promise, his faithfulness would not change. And so here we are, Haggai chapter 2, verse 23, that the Lord is making good on his promise through Zerubbabel, Jeconiah's grandson, that Zerubbabel will carry the authentic imprint of God to show that God is fulfilling his promise of Messiah through the royal line of David. The promise of Messiah the king is still very much alive. That Zerubbabel will be the guarantee of the kingdom of Messiah and that it is coming. And Zerubbabel will be carrying that official insignia of God through his bloodline. That promise God made to King David 500 years earlier in 2 Samuel did not change. That God is resolute in his promises that he is immovable when he says his word. And when he says he will do something, that we can rest very secure 
in it because he, he's not going to be moved from it. That God is faithful to his word and whatever he says, it comes to pass. Even when things look terrible, they do not look promising at all for a moment. You think about when Jeconiah was taken to Babylon. What are we going to do? And then another generation went by and nothing happened. They were still under the thumb of Babylonians. And then here's Zerubbabel. Goes back to Judah, but it's a desolate land. And things look really, really bad. And Haggai reminds him, God keeps his promises. You're here. Think about it. You guys were in captivity. There was no hope for you whatsoever. Who would have ever thought someone would overtake the Babylonians? But the Persians did. And then they allowed you to go back to Judah. That's a miracle. Haggai wants Zerubbabel to see how resolute God is with his promises. Haggai wants us to see the character of God. That God is immovable. When he says something, he means it. And there's just this huge amount of security knowing this character trait of God. That whatever he says, he never breaks his promise. It comes to pass. There's just this huge amount of peace knowing this virtue of God. That he says, Jesus Christ is coming back. And that promise is true. God sees the misery of Zerubbabel. And it looks really, really bad. But it's really not. The same thing may be happening in your life, where something may seem very gloomy in your life today, or someday in the future, where things just look really, really gloomy. But hope is not lost. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, will be returning to make things the way they ought to be. And the promises of God are resolute. They are immovable. He is returning. And so we look at the promises of God. Take a look at this promise where some, of, some churches, some pastors may be very, very discouraged about what's happening in the church today in the United States and in the Western world. But look at this promise in Matthew 16, verse 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And yet there are all these sociological studies about religion and the church and how it's declining. And in parts of the world, in parts of our nation, this is very true. But as Christians, we need to look back to the promise. Just like Haggai was pointing Zerubbabel to the promise. You are of the line of David, and this is what the Lord has said in 2 Samuel, in Psalm 89. Or take a look at John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You want Jesus Christ in your life? He will not turn you down. You might be the one to reject him, but he won't reject you if you come to him in repentance. And I, I love this one, John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a, prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
I'm sharing with you several verses from the Gospel of John because after Haggai we'll be going into 1 John and John is the same author of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. So here's one more from John. John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. These are just a few of the resolute promises of God, our immovable God. And even when it seems like nothing or very little is happening, sometimes there doesn't seem to be all much movement in our lives even when we know the promises of God. Put yourself in Zerubbabel's sandals again. Zerubbabel goes through generations. His grandfather's taken captive, and then his dad, and then it's like him. And if we're just looking at it from an outsider's perspective of just looking at the chronology of the Bible, Zerubbabel is heard of again in, the, in Zechariah. Yes, Haggai, and then we hear of him again in Zechariah. But then after Zechariah, when do you hear of him again? centuries. It is centuries until he pops up again in Matthew chapter 1. You don't hear about him for years, generations. See, sometimes God's ways are very, very mysterious. That there are centuries of silence. Remind you of anything? The second coming of Christ? It's been 2,000 years. Sometimes it's centuries of silence. Zerubbabel between Zechariah and Matthew. And sometimes we wonder why. How can it be this long? Over 2,000 years? Are you kidding me? Come on. We're talking about the second coming of Christ. We're talking about this royal line to Jesus. Well, think back to what the people of Judah were thinking. It's a long time. It's the Babylonian captivity. It's the Persians' oppressors. It's the Greek oppressors. It's the Roman oppressors. And it keeps on going to where it keeps on living under oppression. Always under the power of another until just recently, what is it, 67, that Israel's even a state of its own. But ever since before that, always under oppressors. Always an oppressive life under different empires. And you can read about it in Nehemiah. You can read about it in Malachi. And all those names that we read in Matthew chapter 1. Life was difficult for them. And most of them, you don't even know who they are. We don't know. They're just names in the genealogy. But throughout all of them was oppression. Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman. They all lived through the oppressive rule of others. But happiness is not the goal. Holiness, drawing closer to God, is. See, God works in these mysterious ways, and oftentimes it seems like nothing is happening or the things in our life are not happening quickly enough. And we have 11 generations from Zerubbabel to Jesus. And between Zerubbabel and Jesus, not much is told to us about those people. 
But God is working. Throughout all those 11 generations, he is working out his resolute promises, and his promises are immovable. Sometimes God works like this in us. That life can be hard, and not much seems to be happening to change the circumstances that we're living in. And life was hard for our fathers and our grandfathers. And we're thinking life is looking like it's going to be hard for my kids and my grandkids. But God is faithful to his promises. And Jesus is returning to make things as they ought to be. So when things seem uneventful or quiet or they're not changing in your life, it does not mean that God is not working in your life. God is at work even when it seems like he is not. Even when things seem gloomy in your life, God is preparing a place for you. And if it wasn't so, he wouldn't have told you that. And God is telling you, no one can snatch you out of my hand. God is faithful to his promises. He is immovable from them. He is resolute in them. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize your sovereignty and your majesty. We ask, God, that you would remind us whenever we forget, whenever we minimize who you are, we ask, Lord, for your forgiveness in those times of doubt, in those times of fear. We ask for your strengthening, your patience, your long-suffering. Lord, would you please bless your church to encourage them, especially those who are going through challenges and who are not able to see you as clearly. May you plant in their mind, their spirit, their heart, the pursuit of holiness to draw closer to you. And may they be able to see as Zerubbabel saw just this desolate land until Haggai spoke into his life. May your word, may your church, may worship, may our prayer life speak into us to give us a more truthful outlook of what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.